This is Crosstalk with Mike Smith, Shay Ganim, and Kelly Cutrera. And good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, depending on where you are tuning in. Shay Ganim here in Alberta, along with Mike Smith in British Columbia and Kelly Cutrera in Ontario. Mike, Kelly... Thank you both for being here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I think this is going to be a really interesting experiment for all three of us today. Agreed. Absolutely. Very happy to be here and uh, join you guys. I think this will be a lot of fun. I think so, too. And what we're going to try today is something new. We've decided to sort of bring together the power of our network and connect with our colleagues from across the country and get more of a national perspective on some of the issues that we've all been dealing with and addressing on our shows this year to see if we're going through all the same things in the same way. And if not... Uh, what's different? We're going to go over a few of the hot topics that we've seen in 2023, starting with crime and public safety. So to get the ball rolling, well, let me tell you what we're seeing here in Alberta, because just this week, in fact, the province uh, stepped in with some new funding. They're going to hire an additional 50 police officers in both Calgary and Edmonton. They did the same thing earlier, announcing more funding and plans for law enforcement in the big cities because... We've had a lot of violence uh, in the big cities, in the downtown cores, on the public transportation systems, uh, and then the high-profile attacks that I'm sure you guys have heard of as well. Uh, we had two police officers killed in Edmonton last spring, a couple months ago, um, and what we were told was a targeted attack. A well-known organized crime figure was shot and killed in a busy strip mall parking lot. But to make this one really horrific, his 11-year-old son was in the vehicle at the time and apparently was deliberately targeted, shot and killed as well. That's from police. So these headline grabbing incidents, of course, they, they, they get a lot of attention and really put a spotlight on public safety. So we've seen the province and municipal government spurred to action to try and handle it. Kelly, is it the same thing in Ontario? Is public safety something that people are concerned about there? Yeah, 100%, especially in the big cities. I mean, uh, Stats Canada said that uh, violent crime in Toronto was up 15% year over year in 2022 compared to um, Canada-wide increase only 4%. And in London, Ontario, they saw a bit of a decrease. I'm not sure what's happening there, but I know that the uh, the crimes happening on public transit are making people nervous. We've got gunplay on our streets now, and it seems that there's no neighborhood that's safe from it. This summer, there was a, a a shocking uh, incident uh, where a 44-year-old mother was killed by a stray bullet. She was out getting lunch. And um, the 32-year-old Toronto resident that was arrested and charged with secondary murder in the shooting. Um, basically, he, he had previously served 15 months in jail for after stabbing someone in the heart. And he was out on bail. And yeah. uh, this is happening time and time again. Yeah. And so uh, this is, uh, you know, something that people are concerned about. I think it's keeping people away from, you know, the largest city in Canada, and, which was the New York of Canada. And I think it's it's concerning. We've got to get a handle on things. Yeah, what are you seeing out in uh, B.C. there, Mike? Same thing. We, we hear the stories here about what's going on in Vancouver for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, we have very similar, familiar stories happening here in BC. I mean, people may have heard ab about the uh, Blair Donnelly case here, just to name one. This is a guy who stabbed his own daughter to death in, in horrifying fashion. He was found not cr criminally responsible, sent to a psychiatric hospital. He was let out, stabbed another person, put back in the hospital, attacked a patient with a knife while he was in the hospital. Then he was let out again. I mean, all this guy does is stab people, like, over and over. 
over again. Let him out again, and now he's charged with uh, stabbing three people in Chinatown at a at a cultural event. Now, you know, this is one example. And when you ask our political leaders here, like Premier David Eby here in BC, well, he says the answer is is bail reform. We need tougher bail reform. You know, the the irony in that particular case, this guy is not on bail. He was just let out of a psychiatric hospital. Okay, so yeah. he wasn't out on bail. But there's number. I mean, that is just one. There have been several notorious cases, similar cases here in, in British Columbia. The other thing that's going on here is the chronic repeat offenders or what police call super chronic offenders. So we had a report here. The same 40 offenders, so 40 people arrested 6,000 times in, in Vancouver. What? So, so yeah, I mean, it's 6,000 interactions with the police, 40 people. So this is a hundred, that's like 150 arrests a year, nice. basically. You so that's what's going on. So the problem is, mm -hmm. yeah, we've got some notorious examples of crimes that have happened, but it's also the lack of confidence people have in sort of a, a, a revolving door, rinse and repeat yes. justice system. And that is such a key point. I, I spoke with a, a criminal justice um, chair at Northwest College in Alberta this week, spent 25 years on the beat for EPS. He said they did some surveys. They found out nine people. We, we, we talk about all the problems generated by the homeless population, right, in the inner city and all this. And, and no, no question, that's where a lot of people are focused. He said nine people within that community were responsible for the lion's share. It was the same nine people yeah. over and over and over and over again. So it's exactly the same thing. It's the same characters causing the majority of the problems. Yeah. yeah, we've got a serious backlog in courts, too. So we're seeing several uh, cases dismissed because they're not tended to in a timely manner. And that is a terrifying prospect as well for people, especially the victims. People going forward yeah. in, in cases of, you know, rape and other incidents that are just absolutely horrific. They, they have the uh, the bravery to go forward. And then, the, you know, the crown can't come through for them. The, the other thing is the, the chronic property offenders, too, right? Like, so the, the crimes that get the most attention are horrifying, violent crimes. This is what gets, gets the headlines. And that's what we talk when we talk about bail reform, like the federal government has put some bail reform on the table, like a, a reverse onus. That is for violent repeat offenders who could potentially be kept locked up instead of being released mm -hmm. onto the street. On the other side of this is the chronic repeat property crime offenders. Okay, so I spoke to a lady on my show yesterday. She owns a, a restaurant in downtown Vancouver. She's been running the place for 20 years. Her windows of her restaurant have been smashed nine times just in the last like couple of years. And she's sixty thousand dollars in debt and in on the verge of going out of business. A lot of it doing with this sort of random uh vandalism. Uh, mm. Taggers who would do acid sketch acid at your windows. People who just guys who just walk by and just randomly smash the windows and then their insurance companies Guess what? They don't want to pay for replacement windows anymore because it keeps happening over and over again. So we hear that a lot too here. Yeah. I, f I feel like we're one-upping each other here. I hate to say it. Oh, yeah, you've got that. Well, over here, vehicle theft is ridiculous, up 40% since last year in Toronto alone. And so people are going beyond fob pouches and clubs on their car. They're installing steel yeah. posts or ballards in their driveway, and they don't come cheap. The average cost of installation is into the thousands of dollars. So apart from a vehicle immobilizer and a tracking device, uh, it's scary. And we just found out today nearly two-thirds of Toronto's carjacking-related arrests this year 
involved minors. Why? Because organized crime has their fingers in this, right? They know that these kids are not going to do the amount of time. They are going to get off lightly. So they basically are, you know, um, hiring in staff. Essentially, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And you know what's interesting? And we've all talked about it here. And it's something that it sounds like is universal right across the country is this concept of repeat offenders and revolving doors and bail reform and sort of what we're doing isn't working. Now, the liberal government's talked about they're going to make changes and bail reform is on the way. We're told hasn't happened yet, but it sounds like maybe that might help. But if you talk to police officers, and I know you guys have, it's not that simple. We've got social problems that we need to address too. That's where it all starts. Well, well, guys, a, a lot of it is drug addiction here in British yeah. Columbia. We have an opioid overdose crisis. I know that's happening in your cities too. We have record numbers of overdose death rates here. Brand new numbers just came out this week. There are like seven people a day dying in British Jeez, Columbia yeah. from toxic drug overdose death deaths here. And there is a shortage of treatment and detox facilities to get people help. Um, I've had, I've done heartbreaking interviews on my show with parents who have tried to get their kids into detox, tried to get them into treatment, and they've been told that they have to wait for treatment. I interviewed a, uh, an addictions doctor here at Lionsgate Hospital here, here in, in Vancouver who told me how many times a drug addict has come to him and said, look, I'm ready to get clean. I'm ready to try and quit. Can you please get me into detox? And he has to tell them, you've got like a two or three month waiting list. And then guess what? They overdose and die while they're waiting. While so they're waiting. a lot exactly. of this is being driven by drug addiction. That's what's happening. Yeah, once again, organized crime. Who's, you know, sure. who's profiting from the fentanyl? Uh, it's, it's organized crime and it's a real problem. Sure. No, I think you're absolutely right. And it's universal. I mean, it's interesting to see there's so many parallels. One thing we know that unites us is sadly division. I, I, I don't know. We'll get into this in a second. We are deeply divided uh, when it comes to politics in Canada right now. Alberta, is, it's, we're at each other's throats. So we'll, let's find out what's happening. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and say, hey, what, what's going on? Is it Alberta that's out of step? Is everybody at each other's throats? We'll find out right after this. <laughs> Again, I'm back with you again here in Alberta, along with my fellow chorus talk show host. We have Mike Smith in BC and Kelly Cotrera in Ontario. And uh, Mike, we're going to talk about the state of political discussion in Canada for a few minutes. And we've, I mean, being on the air, we've all seen it take a turn, I think. But I'm wondering what your take is on this. To me, it seems like it's more divisive than it has ever been before. Do you see the same thing in BC? Are people right at each other's throats constantly? Well, we do have a lot of division here in politics and in public opinion here in BC and elsewhere across the country. I think a lot of it is toxic. I don't like a lot of it. You know, when I see these F Trudeau flags and F Trudeau yep. bumper stickers, I don't like that. I think that's disgusting. I, I don't think it's a good example to be setting for our kids to be flying flags like that, but you see them all the time. I mean, anytime there's any kind of a, a rally outside of the Vancouver City Hall or at the BC legislature in Victoria, yeah, we see these F Trudeau f signs and flags. And I don't like it. Um, that said, there is a lot of unhappiness with the present government here. The, 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 the British Columbia has been critical political territory for Justin Trudeau, and he needs to hang on to some of the seats that he has here. The, Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader, he has been out here a lot because he can sense and he can read the polling numbers and he knows that there are seats here that are available and that are ripe for the picking. Some of them are NDP seats as well. So it's going to get nastier. 
You know, it's going to get it's going to get more more aggressive on the provincial scale here too. We've got our politics here on a, a provincial level have been turned absolutely upside down. We have a, a British Columbia Conservative Party now that has been dormant basically for decades, has come out of nowhere, surging up in the polls, and it's completely turned BC politics on its head here too. So yeah, yes, we are divided for sure. You know, Kelly, it's very similar to what Mike was saying here in Alberta. It's really kind of incredible to an extent. Not not all conservative voters and not all NDP voters in the province of Alberta are all in the same camp, but a good chunk of them are. Where you know what, if you if if you want to win their support, really all you need to do is hate the other guy. If you hate Justin Trudeau as much as they hate Justin Trudeau, that's good enough. Your policy really doesn't go any further. It's got to that level of absolute um, nastiness and and you know like you mentioned the f trudeau flags and the bumper stickers and every weekend we have a convoy or a protest of one kind or another and the, pick a cause it seems to change every week but it goes on it's almost become an identity for some people um you had the convoy of course in southern ontario we all watched that with you know horror in some instances what's it like now is it the same thing is it that bitter is it that nasty there too I, I think it is in some in some uh, areas. You know, I think our politicians are being abused uh, more than they ever have in the past. It's it's very overt. People literally have no shame. They don't care who sees them. In fact, no. if they're seen be, behaving uh, badly, they kind of hope there's somebody filming it and they're going to upload it uh, because it gives them more cred in whatever uh, circle they find themselves in. I feel like a lot of people in everyday conversation at dinner parties are avoiding politics. Yeah. Because it is, and that is a real sign that we are divided because, uh, people are coming together and they're, uh, they're really talking about light, frivolous things. Sure. On talk radio, you know, we talk about the important topics, but I think over dinner tables, uh, people are not sure where, where people land anymore and they don't want to bring it up because in the past they were friends and they don't want to have to, you know, figure out if this relationship is um, on the verge of uh, being ditched. I mean, we're done with the purge, I think. A lot of people did it during the pandemic. Um, and I think we don't want to be more divided. So people are avoiding some serious topics. And that's a scary place to be. It is. Because then you kind of lean into the area of uh, misinformation and ignorance or both. That's, you know what, that's that's really too bad to hear that. And because I think we need more more discussion and we need more talk, actually. Um, and if people are avoiding discussing politics, I, I think that's a, a step backwards. What we need is some more respectful discussion. We need more kindness. On, on my show here, I don't tolerate hate on the, on the airwaves here. If we get a caller who's going to sling hate, uh, that caller gets cut off. Okay. So we're, we're trying to have a respectful discussion on some of these important issues. And there are so many of them to discuss, right? Especially as we get closer to another election here. Like if you think about things like the, um, like the dental care program that got rolled out in, in Canada in the in past week, a $13 billion program. Some people think it could cost a, a lot more than that. I would like to hear some more informed, respectful discussion about this program. Like from a guy like Paulia, for example, you, you try to pin this guy down on this particular program. It's like trying to pin jello to the wall. What would you do? Would you shut this program down? Would you continue to expand it? You know, there, there, there are important discussions to be had here. And we can do it with a way that doesn't include hate and, and F Trudeau signs, in my opinion. I think you're right. And, and I, I think it, it would be fascinating. It would be interesting to have the conversation and to get into the details and to actually talk about policy and to talk about positions yeah. and plans would be fantastic. But uh, our premier here in Alberta, Daniel Smith, just got back from COP28. 
Um, and she was talking about she basically has given up all hope at any kind of collaboration with the federal environment minister. She said Stephen mm. Ebo is treacherous. He's a national embarrassment. So when you have that kind of rhetoric coming out of the highest office in the province, um, and and you know why? Because her supporters love it. They feel the yeah. same way. So she used you don't to be a top radio to host, no? Uh, yeah, she did. Yeah, she knows uh -huh. how to make sure that people are responding emotionally. So there's not a lot yeah. of space left for the conversations you guys are talking about. Yeah, well, I will say this. In Ontario, though, we might not be, you know, I say that people are worried about having those political conversations because they don't want to uh, have it get in the way of their relationships. But uh, we might be not as politically divided as you are there because our uh, PC Premier Doug Ford and our NDP uh, Mayor Olivia uh, Chow, Jack Layton's widow, just came up with a huge funny agreement where both sides made compromises. They hugged it out. It was a very yeah. big deal. And I think the further you get away Away from the city, the more you'll see the guy with the prominent FU or F Trudeau yep. flag. But I really think uh, it. I really think our politicians are doing the best to work with each other because they realize that being at each other's throat, nothing is going to be accomplished. And the reality is, Doug Ford, our uh, premier here, wants in again, so he's making nice. And uh, you know, it, it it seems to be working for him in his favor. You know, hey, we, we follow Alberta discussions for, fairly closely here in BC too, because they're our neighbors. And uh, I'll sure. say one thing about Danielle Smith, like her criticism of the, of the Trudeau government's, uh, elect electrification plans and, and going to net zero deadlines in a province where they still have to generate most of their electricity from fossil fuels. I mean, she's got a point. Does she not? <laughs> you know, I mean, she may be doing it in a way that's very aggressive politically to satisfy your base, but I don't know. It, it seems to me that uh, she's got some legitimate issues to discuss there with the Trudeau government. Most definitely does. Yeah. There's no question a lot of the climate policy coming out of Ottawa will have an inordinately bigger effect in Alberta than anywhere sure. else. And, and, yeah. and, and Kelly, the one thing you mentioned there is it, it's so true because on the surface and publicly and coming on the radio yesterday with me, Danielle Smith with the flamethrower at, at Stephen Guibault, last week before she went to COP28, she came together with Christian Freeland to talk about this massive Dow chemical announcement. So you've got the enemies coming, just like you say, there's work mm -hmm. going on behind the scenes, but for the audiences that we talk to, make sure you keep them riled and you're hearing what, you know, telling them what they want to hear. But behind the scenes, I think a lot of things get done. They have to, right? Yeah, because they want to get reelected at the end of the day. I mean, I have to show some sort of result. If I don't have the result to back up my argument, I'm in trouble because somebody on the other side that wants my chair is going to point out that there was no result. I will say, uh, I, I know a lot of people are, uh, looking at Pierre Polyev, especially here in Ontario saying, you know, it's time for a change. We really need yeah. a big change when it comes yeah. to, uh, the feds. They're looking at Pierre Polyev, but he just fell in the polls as well this week. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's still leading. Meeting, but he's falling and it's two years out from an election you know a makeover is great every woman will tell you that <laughs> makes you feel great uh you know spring in your step but the reality is we do i think canadians still want civility and so yeah, if so. he leans too the heavy majority. on yeah on the uh let's yeah. let's go for the jugular i don't think it's going to work for him we'll be back to talk more <laughs> with mike smith and kelly Cutrera right after this Biggest stories of the week with the most opinionated people on the radio. This is Crosstalk with Mike Smith, Shay Gannon, and Kelly Cutrera.
I am Shake Adam, and as you heard, joined by Mike Smith in British Columbia and Kelly Cutrera in Ontario as we talk about some of the issues that made news from coast to coast to coast in our country this year. Uh, right now, we're going to d- dive into one that I think we all heard stories about. We all know uh, we felt the impact. doesn't matter where you are in Canada. Right now in the province of Alberta, the headlines are once again just full of horror stories from inside our hospitals where we're hearing emergency room wait times of more than 12 hours and that's the average wait time children's hospitals upwards of 50 kids in the emergency room waiting area in fact there's a story this week that children on chemotherapy are having their treatment delayed there's just no room to do it icus are completely full you name it now this isn't the first time but the last time was at the height of a global pandemic and then things seem to calm down a bit but I'm sure frontline workers will tell you it's always been a lot going on. But right now we're in a situation where it's breaking through. We're seeing the stories in the news. Uh, there's people dying in Quebec. We've heard stories waiting in the emergency room, things like that. So it seems like we're back to a crisis level once again. Mike, um, British Columbia, same headlines, same stories making news there. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about this issue a lot on my show recently. I've had done some absolutely heartbreaking interviews with people who have been waiting for cancer care. For example, I interviewed a young woman this week. Uh, her name is Lonnie Atwood. She has a serious cancer. She had surgery to remove a tumor and was told by her doctor she needed immediate chemotherapy to follow up that surgery. And she waited for 10 months before she got the chemo and during that time the cancer spread and she's now stage four this was this week on on my show absolutely you know a heartbreaking conversation and we're hearing a lot about this especially especially around cancer care in bc and we've heard a lot about very troubling wait times here for diagnostics for cancer imaging biopsies treatment for radiation and chemotherapy we're below the accepted benchmarks for these treatments. So, and this is in a, a province with an NDP government that spends a ton of money on healthcare. I mean, we got record spending on healthcare, but what we've got, and I'm sure it's everywhere in, in your cities too, we have an aging population, right? So we're getting more demands on the system and we also have a staff shortage. So the government here says the pr- one of the problems is they don't have enough doctors, they don't have enough nurses and they're scouring everywhere trying to get doctors and nurses and, and foreign trained professionals in, into British Columbia. And it's di- it's difficult, that's going to get worse. Yeah, I mean, Kelly, I'm sure it's the same thing, right? This is the thing about it. We we all get focused on what's happening because our, our provinces get a lot of heat over it. But same thing in Ontario. Uh, Got to be absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, same thing in Ontario. We've got a real problem with our nurses shortage shortage here and these uh, for-profit agencies. So basically, uh, they are uh, taking staff away from hospitals and facilities. They're offering them more money. that You have to give up your pension, but you get more money. You get to choose your hours and uh, you have uh, just a better... I guess, uh, working standard. Um, and it's really demoralizing for, uh, the nurses that are staying put, you know, to watch somebody doing the same job they're doing and making more money. It's, uh, soul crushing. They're exhausted. They're overworked. They feel like they've been disrespected throughout the pandemic. Uh, they are basically holding healthcare together and they're not getting a lot of love or respect from, uh, the province. And basically what, what should happen is that we should get rid of these, um, you know, for-profit nursing agencies and make sure that our nurses are paid appropriately because it's costing hospitals more. It's all coming out of our taxpayers' yeah. dollars at the end of the day. So we're paying more so somebody else can take a bit of the nurse's wage that they should be legitimately getting. I had a retired mm. nurse call in the other day and she literally said, 
whatever you do, don't get sick. And I said, don't hmm. get sick. She said, don't yep. get sick. That's how bad it is. Same thing here. Well, be careful. Like if you're going to be walking on the ice, don't fall down because you're going to be waiting for hours for a cast. Same thing. Yeah. The other thing that's going on here, guys, in Vancouver, and I'm, I'm certain it's probably happening there too, is the lengthening wait list for certain types of surgery. So we've had long waits, delays for hip replacement surgeries, knee replacement surgeries. I spoke, I spoke to a woman on my show recently. Her name is Tracy Porteous. If, if listeners want to check out her story online and she needed a hip replacement. She was in severe pain while she was waiting month after month after month for this surgery. Her doctor put her on opioids to manage the pain while she was waiting. Mm. And she was fearful that she was going to become addicted to these drugs. And she felt she was becoming dependent on opioids. She decided to pay for the surgery out of her own pocket at a private clinic. So she went to Calgary to get the hip surgery, $34,000. And she said when she was in the waiting room, half the people in the waiting room were from British Columbia because they traveled next door to Alberta to get the private surgery. We've got a government here that has been trying to crack down on, on private health care. So people have been going to Alberta or they've been going to Mexico or they've been yeah. going to the United States to pay for their surgeries. And, and it sparks the whole conversation about private versus public health care. But, you know, in some ways, I'm like, if you're in pain, why would you not spend your own money on your own health care to relieve your pain? Instead of waiting to take one for the team while you wait in pain and become addicted to opioids. Like, I didn't blame her one bit for paying for no. it. No, me neither. And, yeah. and you know what? I, for some reason in this, well, I guess not for some reason. It's sort of become an institution in Canada where the mere mention of private health care absolutely set some people's hair on fire. And it's a no starter for a lot of politicians. But I mean, yeah. uh, to to her credit, the premier here in Alberta has said, you know what? We're not going to just keep doing the same thing because you, you guys have seen this a million times. The government at the end of the day will say, well, don't blame us. Look, we increased the budget by 2% last year. So we did what we could. But we've done that mm -hmm. a million times and things are worse than they've ever been. So Danielle Smith says, you know what? We're not going to do that again. We're blowing it up. And she has. She's completely pulled down the uh, health administration system in the province of Alberta, fired the entire board of administrators and brought in a single administrator. And now she's putting in four different, you know, agencies that will run health care. So she's actually making some changes. Will it work? Well, that remains. To be would you seen, say, think, Shay, would you say like private health care is expanding in Alberta? Is that going on? Uh, well, privately offered, publicly funded health care most certainly is. There are lots okay. of agreements that are being reached where um, privately funded, privately staffed, privately operated clinics are being built yep. to do some of those surgeries you're talking about, Mike. We're already now, doing it. got to go to the government. It's already happening. It's just an expansion. Yeah. Why not? It works. We're already doing it here in Ontario and people are getting their hips quickly and they're paying with their OHIP card. And there are some people that say that this is ridiculous because these private clinics cost a little bit more, but it's clear in the backlog and you know, nobody has to fly to Alberta. Mm -hmm. No, no offense. By the way, I love Alberta. I lived in Calgary for a while. I just mean no offense taken. But I think you're right. It's like we need. A, we're at a point when it comes to healthcare where nobody should be saying, "Oh, we can't do that. We can't. Why can't we? You're going to have to come up with a reason why we can't." And I also well, have to well, say, the, we already have private health care. Like, doctors sure are independent contractors. Come on. Of course. We already yeah. have it. Well, one of the arguments here against private health care, and, and like I said, we have an NDP government here that is adamant that they do not want to spend any kind of 
two-tier medicine or, or access to private health care. So that's why you see people leaving the province if they want to pay for a private surgery. But one of the arguments is, is if you bring in, let's say, a two-tier system or a parallel private system where people would be allowed to buy private health insurance and go to a private a private facility if they want. Now, one of the arguments in favor of that is that, well, if they if they get out of the waiting line to pay for their own surgery, well, then everyone else moves up one space. Now, the other side, so it, it improves the system, makes things better. Okay, but on the other side of this, I think this is a compelling argument, is that the private system then would begin to sort of hire away healthcare workers from the private from the public system so you'd have more delays in the public system they would start to cream off the the very sort of easy procedures like hip replacements knee replacements that you can do like an assembly line and the more expensive complex illnesses would be left to the public system right this is one of the arguments against it but it's it's an argument that's going to continue as you as you see these wait lists uh, get longer but the argument for the private clinics is that if you have uh, an operating room set up to do any kind of surgery, it's a lot more expensive. And that is on uh, the province's dime. If you set some uh, up a, an operating room for just one specific procedure, it's a lot cheaper. And so, you know, you don't need... Uh, you can cut some of the um, redundancy. You don't need all of that equipment if you're only, you know, performing yeah. one type of procedure. And that's going to save money. So I think we need to look at the healthcare system. It's been broken for a long time. Full disclosure, my brother's a cardiac surgeon. So, I mean, I just hear about how broken things have been. And it's only getting worse and worse and worse as we progress. And I think we already have, you know, these uh, third-party private nurses uh, organizations poaching our nurses. So we've got to look at things differently. We have to, because it's not working anymore. No, that's the thing. At this point, whatever we've been doing, no one can say, hey, it's working. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not working anywhere. So, I mean, we, for lack of a better term, maybe we need to get more surgical and we, and we need to say, absolutely, this, this might work, this might not. But you're right. Uh, what we've been doing just, it hasn't worked out for us. Well, I'm going to squeeze it. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I'll just, just quickly say, like, the, the political debate on this in, in British Columbia right now is, You've got the opposition looking at these wait lists, people leaving British Columbia to pay for their own surgeries, cancer patients dying while they wait. And they, of course, they're just absolutely trashing the government over this. And then you, you ask them, well, what would you do? What would you do differently? Would you spend a ton more money? And I said, well, no, we, we have to make the system more efficient. We got too many administrators. We got too many managers. We got too many vice presidents pulling down six-figure salaries. So we would make make the system leaner. I mean, you hear this all the time. Like people say, oh, the system is inefficient. We got too many managers. We got too much bureaucracy, red tape. And maybe there's some truth to that. But I just think if you just look at the demographics of our country, our province, our provinces, like we're, we're all getting, it's everyone's getting older, you know, and the, the demands on the system are just going to increase, I think. Yeah, they've been telling us about the silver tsunami for generations. That's right. Well, here it is, yeah. and we, we yeah. did nothing to prepare for it. Uh, we'll take a quick break and come back, and then we're gonna we're, we're talking about how expensive it is for healthcare. It's expensive for everything in Canada right now, and I and I'm sure it doesn't matter where you are in this country. Everything costs more. So how are people handling it? We'll find out right after this. Biggest stories of the week with the most opinionated people on the radio. This We're is coming Cross up. Talk with Mike Smith, Shay Gannam, and Kelly Cutrera. Shay Gannam with you. We are back. 
Once again, Kelly Cotrero with us and Mike Smith as well uh, in British Columbia. Uh, Mike and Kelly, of course, is in Ontario. We're talking about I'm in some the, of the big issues. smoke in T.O. Yeah, that's right. The big city. Look at you two big city folks just coming and spending some time. With us. Center of the universe. People. Is that what they that's, it's also known as, isn't it? Um, I don't want to there break. was a there was a story this week, guys, that I think really snapped a lot of Albertans to attention. Because I'll tell you, as an Albertan, we sit here and we look at you two in Toronto and in Vancouver and go, oh boy, you got it rough. I could never live there. It costs so much to live there. There's a story that StatsCan put out their report. What do they call it? They call it the uh, basic basket measure or something like that. Basically what it is, is when people say, you know, how do you earn a living? This is the living. This is what clothing, shelter, transportation, this is the cost of a basic living. Calgary is now the most expensive city in the country, followed by Toronto and Vancouver and Edmonton and Forth, and they're all within $500 of each other. So we're, we're all in the same boat, guys. Does that surprise you as much as it surprised me? Because we always hear that Toronto and Vancouver, holy cow, that's a, a whole different world. It doesn't surprise me with Calgary being more expensive because I just found that, you know, how everybody used to go to Costco to buy steak. Uh, yeah. you know, Calgary is the state capital or Alberta is of Ontario, of, uh, well, there I was, center of the universe, focused on myself, <laughs> of Canada. And, uh, it, you know, I think I saw $90 for a pack of steak at, at I saw that. these days. So I saw that viral, viral are picture. They there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 75 easily. Yeah. You go to Costco, it's at least 75 for a tray of steaks. Yeah. Okay, well, I don't really, I don't really have a lot of sympathy because, uh, it, it, here in Vancouver, it is absolutely insane for cost of living. Um, especially for the price of housing guys. Like, yeah. you know, we, we focus a lot on this in my show. The, the math here does not work, especially for young people who are hoping to buy a home in Vancouver or even Metro Vancouver out into the suburbs. Like, just forget it. It's, forget about a detached, home. I'm talking like a condo or even like a duplex or something. It is out of the question for a lot of young people and you just have to do the math on it. Now, I have listeners who call my show or there may be older listeners, maybe boomers who say like, hey, we had it tough too. There was inflation when, when we got our house, but we scrimped, we saved, we sacrificed and we were able to, to get a down payment and buy a house. And these young people should just stop their whining. Well, go do the math. Okay, so the, the median income in, in, in Vancouver, you take a look at that. It used to be in the 1970s, if you took a look at median income in the 1970s, you could save up a down payment for a home in five years. Mm -hmm. In Vancouver now, according to the recent study, it's 27 years to save up the down payment on, on a home. You know, you go back 30 years ago, the average cost of a home was maybe two and a half, three and a half times the average family income. Now it's like 10 times the family income. So I talk to a lot of young people here who just feel like this economy is like rigged against yeah. them to buy a home. And I feel a lot of sympathy for them. We've got young people here that I work with that are on the show. And I, we talk about it a lot. It's like, do you guys think a home is in your future? It's like, no, we're never going to yeah. afford a home. It's just not possible mm -hmm. for us. That's that. I was talking really about is. a home today in uh, in Toronto that is eight feet wide, guys. It's built between <laughs> two other houses. It's three stories, eight feet wide, a million dollars it's on the market for. What? A million dollars. You can't, that's a bunk bed. 
like every floor can have one, you know, chair. There's a floor with literally, uh, you walk, so it's full on usher house because it's got to be stairs everywhere. Every floor has just something to, as a focal point. One of the, one of the floors yeah. is a bathtub. I don't even know where the toilet fits. Like that's how skinny this house is. A million dollars. It's reached the absurd. And you're right. Uh, people in their twenties now are, are, have reached the, the point where they, uh, are confident that they will never be able to buy any kind of unless property. unless they've got the bank of mom and dad that's right to help them out okay right so i mean if you have parents who are homeowners and maybe can use some of that e- equity in the, their parents home you know that can help but what, people no, out but that equity is going to be used to keep your parents alive later we're, we're well, living yeah. longer than ever i mean if people are depending on their parents and their parents investment to get them by good luck I mean, something has yeah, to happen. No. And here, I know that the government just announced, well, the feds announced the, uh, that catalog. Uh, they're going back to mm-hmm. post, uh, wartime yep. builds. And I think that's a great idea. You know, let's go back to strawberry boxes, homes, but these are going to be multi-leveled and they'll be purpose built. So, you know, a one for people that are retired, another level for, you know, younger, uh, professionals. The other level can be for students, but it's going to be purpose built. And I think we have to, move in that direction. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to have um, a future where people can see themselves w- with a piece of property to call their own. Yeah. yeah and home and, ownership and, just goes away. And the other interesting thing is you you now see every level of government, local, provincial, federal, every single politician in the country is seized with this and talking about it now and it's going to be a, a big political issue going going forward we've got a government here in british columbia very very activist and aggressive on on housing so they've done these huge crackdowns on airbnb for example they brought in a bill to that would force municipalities to densify to allow six plexes and, and and up to six homes on a single family lot all around british columbia and there's some pushback from that so it you know the, the good thing is you see every level of government, every politician at least talking about this now and sensing and realizing that it's top of mind and something needs to get done on it. The major problem is when is that going to get done and how's it going to get done? Because we've got a major labor shortage yep. and people yeah. are saying, I don't know, pull the brakes on immigration. Well, I have to tell you, folks, if we don't let people in to help us build these houses, we're hooped. Yeah, it really it is a classic catch twenty two. We need the people. There's nowhere for the people to live, but we need them to build the housing. It it is an absolute catch twenty two. There's no way we did a story today with a uh, a First Nation just outside of Calgary that is building homes using a three D printer. They pour a slab, a three D printer comes and puts up concrete walls in a few hours. They're building these things and they're building four buildings, and each building has four units. So they're going to have sixteen housing units built between November and March using a 3D printer. It, it's going to be quick and dirty and it's going to work. Yeah, but does it have a quartz countertop? Because I need that. <laughs> right. That's the thing. You're going to have to scale it back and say, hey, if I want a place to live, it's going to, you know, and a lot of people won't want to do it, but I think a lot of people will. They'll make that concession. They have to. Well, you know what? It, as we get closer to a, a federal election, I think this will be a key issue. And I, I think one of the reasons why you see Polyev doing well in the polls, although dipping slightly, as you said, a little bit in a recent poll, but typically leading Trudeau in, in recent polls, it is on the housing file. And, and he's been very, very clever on it in some of his messaging. I don't know if you guys watch. I'm sure you watched that viral video that Polyev did that was viewed millions of times where he talked about the housing hell 
was the title of it. And his basically his answer was get government out of the way. Government is the problem. Well, I guess we'll find we're going to have a conversation about that going forward. Yeah, and I don't disagree with him. I think you take a look whenever we talk about this story. We hear from builders that are like, you know what the process is for me to get a house built? It takes forever. It's a, it's a nightmare. So sometimes the best thing the government can do, he's absolutely right. Just get out of the way. Let industry handle it. They will. There's going to be some problems. But if the red tape is the issue, you got to get out of the way. You just have to. Kelly, Mike, this has been uh, it's been an interesting experience. I do want to ask you this. We're talking about affordability. We're talking about housing right now in Edmonton. Actually, just a little bit north of Edmonton in Smoky Lake, you can get gas for about 94 or 95 cents a liter. Where are you oh. at, Mike, out in the mainland? Uh, the price of gas in Vancouver is, um, I don't have it at my fingertips right now, but it's certainly not as, <laughs> it's a lot more expensive <laughs> than what you're paying, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we got sure the highest taxes in the country here. We got the highest gas taxes in North America. And that's why we've got yeah. the most expensive gas in North America, too. So that's where the Alberta advantage is still happening. Mike, Kelly, this has been so much fun. I hope we do it again soon. Merry Christmas to you both. Thanks a lot. Same to you. Mike Smith in British Columbia. Kelly Cotrera in Ontario. I'm Shay Ganim in Alberta. Thanks for tuning in for Crosstalk. We'll do this again.